amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Greetings. Thank you for joining me, Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry, as we discuss this evening's episode entitled Sexual Abuse to Prison Pipeline. This apparently is a new term relative to the last 24 to 36 months that have been used throughout the United States and mainstream media to address young girls who are victims of the prison pipeline based upon sexual abuse early on. What is interesting about these new terms, if you will, and I use that respectfully, is that in the last 24 to uh, months particularly, many organizations have decided to jump on the bandwagon to address the exploitation of children in and those who have become victims of human trafficking. What is interesting to note beyond that is that this is not new. This has been taking place in the United States for decades, particularly in the last 15 years in which Congress initiated or enacted legislation in 2000 under the Victims of Child Protection, uh, child, excuse me, Victims of Trafficking, the Victims Trafficking, Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000, and in 2015, Justice for Victims of Trafficking. So forgive me, the twist of the tongue there. Today, however, in Washington, D.C., the Honorable Congresswoman Karen Bass did a seminar with individuals from various organizations around the country, including the esteemed Judge Poe of Texas and individuals through the Anne Casey, Annie E. Casey's Foundation, and women who were, in fact, once victims of trafficking. And what I found interesting is that although this was a briefing and a policy, I thought that I would learn something new, if that makes sense. I am grateful for the opportunity for her to utilize her time and resources to present this issue. But I thought that the panelists were going to present us with new information on how to combat some of these issues that are addressing women of color, particularly in excess of 60 plus percent in some jurisdictions around the country. And what I found is the same white paper or research and studies that have basically sort of circulated around industries, nonprofits, and government entities as it pertains to dealing with sexual abuse to the prison pipeline. Again, some of the topics that were discussed today were, quote, unquote, locked doors or say don't go to jail. I thought that quote by one of the ladies on the panel was interesting. And what she meant by that was this. How do we decriminalize the acts of victims of human trafficking, victims of child sexual exploitation, or individuals deemed minors involved in sex trafficking? And her response, sort of speak, was, well, if we don't lock them up, where we're going to put them? And so that is what 
really has me drawn to this comment. What about safe houses? The privatization of the prison industrial complex is a multi-billion dollar corporation, GEO, CA, and others. How then do we suggest that the only way that we resolve addressing victims of sexual exploitation is lock them up and put them in jail? In other words, what I took from that comment was, if you don't put them in jail, what else do you have available? Well, I would have hoped you would have thought of safe house. Hashtag safe houses, not jail houses. If we have the time, money, and resources to build jail houses, why not designate some of the jail houses that already exist, renovate them, so that they provide safe houses for girls, so that these young ladies don't feel like they're incarcerated? From 2008 up until recent, we're in a country where there are so the inventory is plentiful in some jurisdictions for foreclosed properties. Why not use some of those foreclosed properties and instead of the government negotiating with the mortgage companies for a $9 billion settlement, why not ask the United States Department of Justice to say to some of those banks, hey, look, some of those properties you foreclosed upon in these 50 states, why don't you turn some of those properties over? Why don't you engage in forfeiture of assets, pursue them criminally for the mortgage crisis, but they still have an abundance of properties? even through the government-sanctioned programs through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Why not ask for some of those properties and then allow those properties to be made available? HUD negotiates program and services with nonprofit organizations. Why not then allow for some of those properties to be purchased as safe houses? In the state of Georgia, the city of Atlanta is one of the country's leading cities for sex trafficking and the exploitation of children, yet there are only two safe houses. In 159 counties, yes, we have individuals who have group homes, but not designated safe houses. So if there's 159 counties with two designated safe houses, as it pertains to an interview that was conducted by CNN in July 2015. And so how do we make these changes? The African American Juvenile Justice Project, we don't solicit federal, state, public, or private funding. However, I am now considering the AAJJP, but for the lawmobile, entering into partnerships so that we can move forward to address this issue of safe houses, even using some of our own properties, so that that, in fact, will provide that service and fill that void. But you have industries and organizations that are receiving hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars in grant money, and I call it funding opportunities, the exploitation of the plight, particularly of African-American children, that allows for these organizations to receive the monies. But then when we need a place for the girls, there's no place to bring them. We have to find, find the right way to say this, alternative methods to make sure that these girls are safe. So during this policy briefing, another comment that came up that was very interesting, that is worth me mentioning, is community outreach, quote-unquote, show up, trying to insinuate, and she's correct. There are situations where there are not enough programs out there who are available to these girls when they need them or the young boys, such that when it's time for you to call or they call upon us for help, where are you? Well, I'm not married. I'm single with no children. 
so I have a 24-hour hotline, if you will, where they know how to reach me on the streets. My first recovery was in Atlanta, Jonesboro Road, in 2001, okay? So I've been in this for a minute, and I don't have to actually give the dates and the times and the locations of my recovery, nor will I make a poster child like a Rachel's Law so that young girls who have to continue to live through life, people now associate them with being a prostitute. I don't want to do that to these young ladies. So my position would be I do understand what people felt they needed to do, but I have a problem with individuals out there feeling like you have to take every young girl that you've recovered and make her a poster child of prostitution so that you, in fact, could feel like you're doing something. I just felt the need to throw that out there. We do need to hear from them, but not in a way that makes them poster children so that the rest of their lives are adversely affected by the association of sexual exploitation and prostitution. So community outreach and show up was one of the other keynotes that was addressed today. And she's correct. Where are these organizations? Why aren't they available? Again, multimillion-dollar grant country, federal, state agencies offering monies. So where are they when these young girls need them? That's why they're able, that's why they're getting arrested. If there were enough safe houses, we would make programs and services very similar to children that are victims of abuse, where the police, instead of taking them to a jail, you find a foster parent. So it's the equivalent program and service that we could make readily available to these victims, safe houses. We've been doing it well before people started talking about it. The next was don't look for them and provide wraparound services. I agree with that. We have to be in a position where the girls know where you are and who you are and how to make contact with you. One of the scenarios was where you can offer a girl on the street a card that says Taco Bell so that you can safely allow for this exit. And I have a concern about that because here's my scenario. If we can find them, the police can find them. So my scenario, again, is if the police are doing their job, cover the girls, and get them to a safe house, not to a jailhouse, so that they can be properly processed and assessed in the safe house. Do you really think that a 12- and 13-year-old girl wakes up one day and say, I want you to orally sodomize me and anally sodomize me? I want to be gang raped. I want to be drugged. I want to be a victim of substance abuse and, and violence, and then put in a residential facility or someone's private residence and be exploited? No, we know that they're victims. Why do we then say to this child, you have to prove that you're a victim of sexual exploitation? According to the FBI report, most recent of 2012, 59.5% of girls arrested in the United States under the age of 18 for prostitution are African-American girls. So that's why they expect us to prove that we're victims. It's part of the misogynist, sexist, racist mentality that leads one to believe that black women and black girls, this is what they like. This is what they're into. The majority of the pimps are black males. The majority of the Johns are white males. We'll be back. For joining me on Live with Sherry as we discuss today's episode, Sexual Abuse to the Prison Pipeline. This is not a new phenomenon in the United States. We have had enough statistics, studies, white paper, research about child labor, prostitution, and criminals, criminal acts among juveniles for us to be able to make proper assessments and provide enough research and information as it pertains to 
the issue of child labor, prostitution, and the prison pipeline such that we don't need to make this a special area of law. And I say that respectfully. A lot of my colleagues are like, oh, Sherry, we need the research. No, you don't. This is a money's game. It's about grant funding. We know enough about prostitution. It's one of the oldest professions in this country. We know enough about slavery. There's enough data and research concerning different forms of slavery, be it on U.S. soil or outside of our borders. We know we have the data from Africans being brought here as slaves to slave labor and the like. We have enough history in this country about child labor laws and violations. We have that from the turn of the 21st century to the current in the new millennium. We have enough data about the history and the industry, if you will, of prostitution. So why are we all lying and wasting time saying, well, we have to wait to develop best practices? No, we don't. There's enough evidence out there. And the time, money, and resources that these multimillion-dollar grants fund over the duration could best be used giving these girls treatment and rehabilitative services. You don't have to arrest these young ladies and give them a criminal record of their life. So then who cares what type of program and services you give them thereafter? They're labeled as a prostitute. Who hires them? What schools admits them? I think we need to enact a fair criminal records reporting act. I've been reiterating that because that works in the same capacity as the fair credit reporting act which is governed through the FTC, the Fair Trade Commission. And what that allows for is after a certain segment of time, your credit disappears, bankruptcy disappears. You don't have to report it. So we have this issue that we're so interested in reentry and rehabilitative programs and services. Well, if we are, that's where you start. What becomes the prohibitive factor that interferes with one's ability to attain employment if they are a felon? They hit the felony record, the criminal record. So if you're able to say, well, you've completed your sentence, so since a misdemeanor is two years, two years from the date of your sentence completion, that record is gone, period. Felony, seven years, nonviolent felony, not the seven deadly sins, gone, finished after seven years from the date. That at least gives some door opener for you. You can incur billions of dollars in debt in this country and in two years buy a new home. But when it comes to misdemeanor offenses, possession of marijuana less than an ounce, that has to stay on your record the rest of your life and adversely interfere with your ability to attain Pell Grants and financial aid? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. In January of 2015, the Obama administration gave consideration to allowing for incarcerated individuals to receive Pell Grants and funding. Yet in the same token, we have the Gainful Employment Act which prohibits most colleges and universities from even admitting students who have prior histories. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The other issue that was addressed today is, quote, unquote, the reauthorization of the Juvenile Justice Pre uh, Prevention Act, JJPR, which uh, is a critical bill that basically uh, deals with everything from funding on state levels to addressing status offenses and the like. Status offenses meaning runaways, truancy, et cetera. So that came up. Like maybe if we move forward to reauthorize that piece of legislation. So let me stop there and say this. Before Congress is the Senate reform bill or legislation 
which is does deals with everything from the vows to point systems for individuals that are subjected to mandatory minimum sentences and the like. Part of this new sentencing reform piece of legislation is going to revisit Senate Bill 1789 that was signed August 2010. Did you hear that? August 2010 by President Obama. And when it was signed in August 2010, and I'm saying this with utmost respect, not one person who was the victim of disparative impact sentencing between crack cocaine and powder cocaine has been released from prison. And that bill and that legislation was signed five years ago. So while everybody is all happy about this Senate reform piece of legislation, we need to be very diligent about what we're advocating for. It's not enough for the legislation to pass. The legislation has to be effective and it has to work. President Obama, can you do something about releasing some of those people that we know are the victims of disparative impact and discriminatory and arbitrarily enforced legislation like crack cocaine laws? From New York's Rockefeller laws to mandatory minimums, we have individuals 19 years of age that were sentenced in the 1980s. Those are pine box sentences for most of these individuals. So if you're 30 or 40 and you were sentenced in 1980 under mandatory minimum, many of them were nonviolent drug offenses, but they fell under mandatory minimums, 10 years mandatory imprisonment, 20 years. I call those pine box, meaning the only way you're going to leave the prison system is in a box, a coffin, right? No different than CCE, continuing criminal enterprises, and RICO violations. Mandatory minimum. So here, when we start saying, what are we going to do about this prison pipeline for girls? Well, let me remind you that prior to the briefing today, which is needed, pass legislation. Why weren't we speaking up then? Because I'm a lone one-person committee, I like to think, and I sent my recommendations. But the politics of the funding opportunities is to silence individuals. If we're truly interested in legislative reform, then why don't we present a request to simply amend the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000 that was reauthorized in 2013 to simply add three things, that every state in the union has a safe harbor law, that we decriminalize and it's mandated that we cannot and will not arrest anyone under the age of 18 for prostitution, that it is mandatory that states have a division of services and programs specific for and dedicated to the exploitation of children, that through that department there will be trained social workers who in turn will be required to work with the girls who are picked up by police, go from the police department to the safe house, not the jail house, that they are recipients of services and assessment for treatment and rehabilitation, and they age out, not where they're there in lockdown like they're criminals? Why is it so difficult for us to then add to that piece of legislation that there would be programs and services for boys and members of the LGBT community who right now are victims of unequal protection of law? They don't receive the same program and services as girls. Why are we taking the long road with, well, we got to wait for research? No, we don't. The research has been there. Prostitution is the oldest industry in this country, next to slavery. 
slavery, prostitution, and child labor. There's enough data that sets us back all the way to the 1800s to the current date. This is the game we play to receive funding from organizations. But we're not really doing anything other than passing around white paper. And I look particularly as an African-American and the founder of the African-American Juvenile Justice Project. And in that capacity, I say, the plight of the African-American children in America is the same today as it was 20 years ago when we first started having the conversation about the school-to-prison pipeline. So with all the data and all the research, nothing has changed. New Orleans is considering a human trafficking court. Why? We don't want these girls going through a court system. We want them to go to a safe house, not a jailhouse. We don't need you criminalizing them being exploited. And if you need to find out whether they're victims, there's a way that you can do that. It's called asking questions. It's called allowing the social worker to treat them as a victim from the start and securing the same information that they would receive from an individual who's subject to child molestation in their household. Why do we feel the need to criminalize them? Because they're African-American girls? This is no different than how we treated the crack addiction. The crack epidemic and the addiction of individuals on crack was treated as a crime. Now, 30 years later almost, we now recognize that meth, and the prescription drug addictions are mental health disorders, and we need drug courts for them. Really? And the majority of the girls that are victims are African-American girls, many of whom are being pimped by black men. And although black men do not control the pornography industry, white men do, the black men are responsible for getting the girls in the industry, keeping them there, and securing white johns for them. So justice or, or else, you need to add that to your agenda. And I've asked the Minister Louis Farrakhan and quote-unquote Brother Jesse to add that to the agenda. Because on the website, it gives all of the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And one of those teachings, as I would interpret it, would be that you're not going to enslave anybody, especially not these young sisters. We're supposed to make demands to protect our women. Well, how are you going to make a demand justice or else to protect our women when our women and girls are being violated by black men? Have a real conversation about sexual abuse in America and this sex trafficking and the exploitation of our children. If we're going to have a real conversation, then everybody's got to be held accountable and responsible. That's what the African-American Juvenile Justice Project is about, accountability and responsibility. No, it's not rhetoric. It's not rhetoric when we hold ourselves accountable. It's rhetoric when we operate in sense of victimization and we don't operate beyond excuses, denial, and justification. That's rhetorical. That's rhetoric. Rhetoric is not saying clean up your bedroom first before you try and go and clean up somebody else's. It says hold yourself accountable. So if you hold yourself accountable, a lot of the plights that we're experiencing, we may not even have to deal with. People are going to treat us the way we treat ourselves. For 15 years, almost eight out of the 15 years, we had a black president in the White House, but we still had slavery in America. We'll be back. Keep you joining me, Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry, as we conclude today's episode entitled Sexual Abuse and the Prison Pipeline. Today, the Honorable Congresswoman Bass out of California took her time 
to address with a panel and experts, quote unquote, in the field of child sexual exploitation to come to some resolutions to, quote unquote, eradicate sexual human trafficking in America. And I'm sure abroad as well, because she has a lot of work that she does in Africa. But as I listened to a lot of the presentation and the panelists talk today, they use the term, quote unquote, sense of urgency. And I thought to myself, 2015 is a sense of urgency for sex trafficking in America? I know right here in Atlanta, Georgia, that there have been victims of sex trafficking since the 1990s, before then, but particularly in the 90s, leading into 2000, as Atlanta began to move forward, thanks to the former mayor, Campbell, of North Carolina, by the way, in the licensing of young girls to enter into the strip dance, exotic dance industry. So you had girls as young as 18 years old who were able to dance in the nude for men that were 21 and older because the club's drinking age is 21. So that's a problem right then, isn't it? They refused to raise the age to 21. You had people on the front line like Nadine Thomas and Donzella James and uh, Willard and Utterman who been on the front line in terms of advocacy and their positions as representatives for the state of Georgia and the General Assembly. And from 2001 to 2015, it took 14 years for Georgia to enact House Bill 244. And Governor Nathan Deal has been active in criminal justice reform, and there's much room for improvement. You still have laws on the book in Georgia that are unconstitutional, but he has still been more active than any of his predecessors before him, Democrat or Republican. But he got this piece of legislation passed, and he has a program now called Georgia Cares, and they're doing the best that they can in going forward. But I still cry out for the black churches in Georgia to be vocal. See, when you can make money, by asking people over the years, these mega ministries, black and white alike, to send money to stop slavery in Mexico and in the Sudan and Africa. But now it's on American soil. So who's asking for the money now? Because the game is over. You've been exposed. Because there were no programs and services set up in those countries, let alone here in the U.S. So we are all accountable and responsible for the plight of our children locally and on a national level. And I have been working with advocates across this country who are on the streets. And so you can't wait for the girls to get off the street to now speak up and take on panel conversations. We have to be accountable and responsible for those girls that are still out there. Each one, teach one. Be a tree planted and rooted where you are, bringing shade and protection to all who come underneath. And so I thank you, Congresswoman Bass, for being on the front line and doing what you felt was necessary today to bring up some awareness and bring about change. But since Atlanta leads the nation in the exploitation of victims of sex trafficking, we all need to still be working together, street advocates, frontline advocates, politicians, judges, policymakers, and nonprofits, 
and corporate structures alike to eradicate modern-day slavery, the exploitation of children in America, and women and children affected by human trafficking. Thank you for joining me today on BTR. This is Live with Sherry. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.